0: Alright, we're going to continue our study in 1 Kings chapter 11. Uh, Last time we looked at uh, God appearing to Solomon again in that covenant he reminded him of. Um, We talked about the loving way God punishes us. We saw the interaction between Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Um, She was astounded at his wisdom and she gave God the glory for it we saw how rich Solomon was and we looked at a few verses about contentment and the danger of loving money and now we're going to jump into 1 kings chapter 11 lord i pray that uh, you would just be with us this morning lord that you would just bless this reading and studying of your word i pray lord that you would just speak through me lord and keep me from saying anything that is not of you lord or that is uh, incorrect lord god and i pray that you would just uh, draw us closer to you lord And uh, meet with us as we draw close to you, Lord Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. So chapter 11 here, verse 1, it says, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you, Surely they will turn your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. So, <clears throat> um, that's pretty crazy. He had that many wives. And uh, we know, uh, God knows what he's talking about when he gives us a warning And he wants what's best for us. Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden, but God forbids it because it's bad for us. It's funny because people sometimes get that the other way around. They think that God's just like this strict uh, master with a ruler ready to slap people who step out of line. But that's not the way it is. God cares about us, and that's why he gives us these rules to follow. And these wives, they turn Solomon's heart away from God. So he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So if he married one of them a day, it would take him three years to marry that many wives. And then he'd have an anniversary, uh, three anniversaries a day to celebrate too. If you like think about it that way, it's like, that's just insane. That's too many wives. It's an absurd number of wives. You know, you think about how much attention they would get and... Maybe they got to live in the palace and maybe they got to eat the good food, but I don't think it uh, was worth it for them. Because even if he divided up his attention and love equally, they each would only get 0.01% of his time and his affection. And so that's no way to have a marriage there. It's not the way God designed marriage. And if you look at Matthew chapter 19... verse 3 to 6. It says here, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, This is Jesus talking, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So that shows us that God has a design in marriage, and it's for one man to marry one woman. And you try to think of uh, how could Solomon become one with a thousand different people here? It's impossible. So it's against God's design. Um, I wouldn't. If I had to take a guess, I would guess that not even one of those was a healthy marriage relationship. And uh, God gives a lot of guidelines and commands for His design of marriage throughout His Word. Another cross reference here is Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty-two. Paul here gives like a summary of uh, the family uh, design here. But he says, "'Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, "'for the husband is head of the wife, "'as also Christ is head of the church, "'and he is the Savior of the body. "'Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, "'so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. "'Husbands, love your wives, "'just as Christ also loved the church "'and gave himself for her, "'that he might sanctify and cleanse her "'with the washing of water by the word.'" that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And so uh, he summarizes it pretty well. He says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, honor your parents. And fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. And uh, if you notice this section here, it really talks more about Jesus and his relationship to us in the church than it did talk about the family relationship here. And uh, I think that's just the way it's supposed to be. Jesus is supposed to be the focus and the center, and then everything else will come along. Um, We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. So when wives submit to their husbands, they're really submitting to Jesus because they're obeying his command here. When husbands love their wives, they're really loving Jesus because they're obeying his command here. When children honor their parents, they're really honoring God because they're obeying his command. And so Jesus needs to be the center focus in our relationships. Uh, the devil really tries to attack this, uh, if you noticed. He always tries to divide this or pervert it or something. Uh, it's really interesting if you, take, uh, if you really think about that. Um, there is one program called They Sold Their Souls for Rock and Roll on YouTube and they just talk about the, the rock movement and the hippie movement and all. And it's really, it really was pointed at like everyone do your own thing and it really attacked the family unit if you really look at it. It's an interesting program to watch. But um, God needs to be the center focus of our relationships and we need to keep our guard up because the devil wants to attack that. Back to First Kings here. Verse 4 says, For it was so, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. So it was wrong for Solomon to marry so many wives, but it was also wrong for him to marry pagan wives. And we looked at this last week, that these nationalities he said he married, back in verse uh, 2, I think it was, or verse 1, They're uh, nations that should have been driven out in the time of Joshua, but the people thought that they had it under control. They're like, well, we'll just make them slaves. We don't have to drive them out. And it came back uh, to bite uh, Solomon here. So they're turning his heart away from God, even though he was the wisest king of his time, and he he made this huge mistake. God didn't ask Solomon to build him a temple. He didn't ask for... The thousands of sacrifices he offered, what God really wanted was his heart, but his uh, choice in wives turned his heart away from God. Second uh, Corinthians chapter six, verse 14, talks about being unequally yoked with unbelievers here. Second Corinthians chapter six. In verse 14, it says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So in this verse here, it's saying, uh, don't be unequally yoked. And when you would take a yoke of oxen, you take two oxen and put that uh, wood across their necks. And it'd be so that they could pull a cart or to plow a field. And it'd be really useful for the master of the ox in there. But if you have them unequally yoked, if one wants to go one direction and another a different direction, they're just not going to be effective. And uh, if one ox wants to serve his master and work hard and keep moving, but the other ox wants to just lay down there, they're just it's not going to work. And so um, that's what Paul is saying there. He's saying... We should try to be equally yoked, so we can be more effective for God. But uh, it doesn't always work out like that. And in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, Paul also says here. Um, I guess I'll just summarize it here. But he basically says that if you are unequally yoked, you know, don't get divorced, but uh, just continue to stay with them if they will let, allow it, and you'll win them over to Christ, hopefully, with your example and your love for God. So here we have Solomon. He should have known better than to marry a thousand uh, pagan wives here. And it's, he's unequally yoked, and it really slows him down. It's just like a yoke of oxen. It says he turned his heart away from the Lord. So back in 1 Kings chapter 11, we'll go on to verse 5 here. It says, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, So Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So this isn't too bad, right? He's just setting up a few idols to make his wives happy? That doesn't sound like a terrible thing, but um, if you really uh, look in history what these idols were, the Ashtoreth there was supposed to be a goddess of fertility, and you would worship her with sexual acts. And there would be temple prostitutes for that usually. And then the idol Molech there would be worshipped with human sacrifices. And a lot of times it would be children or babies that they would sacrifice to this idol. So these are really dark things here. And um, it's gross to think about, but uh, even though we don't have the same statues or rituals in our society, we do see a lot of these same acts. You know, sexual immorality is just laughed at by the nation. It's a light thing to make fun of here. And we may not offer children to Molech, but there's a ton of abortions that happen a day. And it's not sacrifice to an idol, but it's sacrifice to the God of convenience, you know, It's easier to get an abortion than to raise a child. So um, Solomon's not the only one who's guilty here. Our nation uh, has some repenting to do ourselves. Uh, Let me see here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. And here Jesus says... Uh, so here we see that um, we're supposed to be the flavor to the world. And we're supposed to be a lamp in, uh, in the dark world. And it says, uh, don't put a basket over your lamp. You know, don't blend in with the darkness. But we're supposed to stand out and be different. And as the days grow darker, the light of Jesus shining through us is only going to be all the brighter. So... Uh, Even though our society may be going downhill and getting darker, we can still be bright lights in it and show them the hope and the love of Jesus. Uh, Also here, um, the Israelites were supposed to stand out themselves as a nation as they followed God's commandments. And you compare the temple that Solomon built to now these uh, places of secular worship he set up here. You know, if you picture a pagan walking into the courtyard of the Lord, they'd just be totally lost. I think the first thing they would notice is there's no idols in the courtyard. They're like, where are the gods you're supposed to serve, you know? And a lot of those idols, if you look up pictures, they'd be kind of gross. They'd have like part man, part beast, and they'd have these judgmental eyes looking at you. But that's not uh, what God is. He's a loving God. And um, they'd notice the priests, that they'd be clean and dressed uh, decently in kind of plain clothes. Uh, you know, a lot of the pagan priests, they would be cutting themselves to get attention or they would shave their head in a weird way or uh, cover themselves in these tattoos just to worship their idols. But these priests, God gave them commands in Leviticus just to be clean, to wear their white robes and their robes in a certain way and everything about them was to remind people about God the way they wore their clothes, the tassels they had. So that was another thing that would have stood out to them. And, uh, you know, we looked at Solomon making all the brass things there. They were all to hold water and to cleanse things. You know, I'm sure the cleanliness would have astounded them. You know, when they're making human sacrifices and they have temple prostitutes, that's not a very clean environment. That's like a, you know, you must think of all the germs that must be there. So this temple, the courtyard of the Lord, would just be totally different to them as they would see the way God set things up. They worshipped their gods in fear and it was a pain to worship them. Like we said, they would cut themselves to get attention. They'd sacrifice their children to get ahead. They'd worship different gods for different provisions. They'd have to make a sacrifice to this god to get their rain, A sacrifice to Ashtoreth to have more kids. But... um. You know, our God is the all-providing God, and he's a pleasure to worship. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he said he came to give life and to give it more abundantly. You know, a lot of people think, oh, I don't want to become a Christian. You know, I've got so many rules and so many things, that's going to burden me down. But God wants to give more life, and that's why he came. So God is totally different than these idols that now Solomon is turning to. And the sad thing is here that he's setting up a pattern for the children of Israel to follow. And throughout the whole rest of the book of 1st and 2nd Kings, one king will set up idols. The next king will kind of start a revival and tear them down. Another king will come along and set up idols again. It's just this pattern back and forth until God finally carries them away to captivity in Babylon. So it's sad the choices that Solomon made here. In verse 9 it goes on. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord, God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless... I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So God's angry with Solomon and he punishes him because he broke that covenant they made. God made a very clear covenant. If you follow me, then I will establish your kingdom. It'll last And now Solomon broke that. So God's saying that he's going to follow his end of the covenant now and his kingdom isn't going to last. But even in this punishment, God's being merciful and gracious. He's being merciful. You know, he said, nevertheless, like it's not going to be just punishment. There's going to be this mercy. It's not going to happen in your time. It's going to happen in the time of your son. So that was a merciful act of God. And then it's gracious because God says, however... He again puts that uh, word in there to say he's not going to punish him completely here. In his act of grace, he said that he's going to leave his son one tribe to rule over still. And that's a really gracious thing, you know. Solomon didn't keep his part of the covenant, but God's still being gracious and merciful to him. And if you notice, he said it was for the sake of David that he did those acts of mercy and grace. And so Solomon's disobedience affected his son in a bad way. Because God said he's going to take it away from his son. But David's act of obedience affected his son and his grandson in a good way. So we see here that God really is more gracious and patient than he is judgmental and punishing. Let's see. And it's also sad, you know, God appeared to Solomon here several times. And... uh, How many times are these idols going to appear to him or work in his life? And the answer is, not at all. But sin's enticing to us, and we need to keep our guard up. In verse 14, it goes on. Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king in Edom. For it happened when David was in Edom, and Joab the commander of the army had gone up to bury the slain after he had killed every male in Edom. Because for six months, Joab remained there with all Israel, until he had cut down every male in Edom. Uh, That Hadad fled to Egypt, he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him. Hadad was still a little child. Then they arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh king of Egypt who gave him a house, apportioned food for him, and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him his wife, the sister of his own wife, that is, the sister of Queen Tappanis. Then the sister of Tappanis bore Genubath his son, whom Tapanes weaned in Pharaoh's house, and Genubath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. So when Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his fathers, and that Joab the commander rested with his fathers, or I'm sorry, that Joab the commander of the army was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me depart that I may go to my own country. Then Pharaoh said to him, But what have you lacked with me that suddenly you seek to go to your own country? So he answered, Nothing but let me go anyways. So this is a really weird story if you look at it here. And I think it's showing that God is the one in control of all this, that all this would work out this way. Joab went to wipe out this whole tribe of Edom here, but this guy escaped. And it's strange to me that the Pharaoh would be so kind to him to take him into his palace and give him uh, the queen's sister as a wife and give him land and food. So it's, like, it's so crazy that all these things would happen to this guy. But uh, I think it's showing that God has a plan he's working out ahead of time. And uh, even this punishment here from God, he's planned it out, but he intends to use it to bring Solomon back to him. So it's grace and punishment again there. Let's see. So uh, Hadad had everything he needed in Egypt but he wasn't content to stay there because he didn't have revenge. So he wanted to go cause trouble for Solomon. So it's just interesting that uh, God used him that way. In verse 23 it says, And God raised up another adversary against him, Rezon the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord, had a desert king of Zoba. So he gathered men to him and became captain over a band of raiders. And when David killed those of Zoba." And they went to Damascus and dwelt there and reigned in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, besides the trouble that Hadad caused. And he abhorred Israel, and he reigned over Assyria. So we have another adversary here against Solomon. And this happened before he was king. It happened back, uh, let me see here. Yeah, it happened back in the time of David. And he caused this party of raiders here. And usually they would kind of attack the cities on the outskirts or small villages that couldn't defend themselves and just loot them and stuff. So it just causes a lot of trouble here. They aren't going like, to try to take over Israel. They don't have a big army. They just have enough of a mob to create trouble. Verse 26 goes on. Then Solomon's servant Jeroboam, the son of Nebat... An Ephraimite from Zerida, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the millow and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor, and Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph." And so it sounds like Jeroboam's beef with Solomon is that he felt he was being worked too hard maybe. In verse 27 it says, This is what caused him to rebel. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David his father. So it doesn't really sound like it's a good reason to rebel against your king. But um, it's interesting that Solomon made him, put him in that position because he was industrious and a man of valor. But as we see here, that can also be a... Dangerous quality, too, because now he's going to come against Solomon with that uh, industriousness and his valor. In verse 29, it goes on. Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way, and he had clothed himself with a new garment, and the two were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and will give ten tribes to you. But he shall have one tribe, for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moabites, and Milcom, the God of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes, and keep my statutes and my judgment, as did his father David. So this prophet came to Jeroboam, and he had this weird way of showing him what God was going to do. He tore up his clothes into twelve different pieces, and gave him the ten, and kept one for himself. And it's interesting if you notice the math there, because that doesn't add up to twelve. There's one piece unaccounted for. And uh, it's not clear here, but I think it's probably talking about the tribe of Levi because they were supposed to be that priestly tribe. And if you look back in the Old Testament, uh, when they were dividing the land in Joshua's time, the Levites didn't get an inheritance because God was supposed to be their inheritance. And in the book of Numbers, when the Israelites took a census, the Levites weren't supposed to be numbered because they were supposed to be set apart for God. So I think that's probably talking about that tribe. But God makes this promise to Jeroboam here. And in the next chapter, we're going to see that Jeroboam has a lack of faith in this promise. And he caused trouble for Israel and for himself here. Because he didn't believe what God told them here. So we'll look at that uh, next week, probably. Uh, on to verse 34, it says, However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, "...because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. And I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe, that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself, to put my name there." So this is sad that the nation is going to be divided And we know for the next 400 years, they're going to be two separate kingdoms until they're both taken into captivity. So we see that sin comes with consequences. And we already mentioned several times that God's still gracious even in those consequences. And God makes it clear to Jeroboam with this promise here. He repeated it three different times. He said, you're going to get 10 tribes. Uh, Judah's going to belong to the line of David, though. And he kept repeating himself to make it clear and let it sink in here. But uh, Jeroboam is not going to believe it in the next chapter. He's going to take matters into his own hand. In verse 37, it goes on. So I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart desires and you shall be king over Israel. Then, I, then it shall be if you heed all that I command you and walk in all my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house, as I built for David, and will give Israel to you. So that's the exact same deal that God made with Solomon. He said, "If you obey, I will establish you, and your line will continue." So that's a huge uh, promise for God to make. There, it's an amazing deal. Because it shouldn't be that hard to follow God's commandments because they're what's for best for us. But we're going to see that he's going to fail just like Solomon did. Uh, in verse 41 it says, oh, I'm sorry, verse 40 it says, Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So that's interesting. We have... Uh, You know, Solomon had a big time of peace and prosperity where he didn't have any enemies at all. But then when he disobeyed God, God raised up these three enemies all at once, it looks like. And it's interesting that two of them hid out in Egypt. And one of Solomon's wives was Pharaoh's daughter. You would think that he would have been able to extradite them and take care of them. But uh, he wasn't able to because this thing is from God. And so a friendship with the world won't help you in that situation. Verse 41, it says, Now the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. So he reigned as long as uh, his father David did. They both reigned for 40 years each. And apparently there was a book written called The Acts of Solomon. But that's not in the Bible here. You know a lot of successful people write books about how they became great. And the great things they did. But uh, it must have passed away into non-existence. But uh, we have some of his books that lasted though. We have Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. And I want to look at, uh, kind of summarize the book of Ecclesiastes here, before we move on from Solomon. So if you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, that's a few books away here. It's after Psalms and Proverbs. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Verse 1 says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes towards the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said? See, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things. So we can tell here that Solomon's pretty down. You know, he's seeing the things he's accomplished. He knows they're eventually going to fade away. He sees a... all these examples here, he just sees things going around and around again. He sees it rain, he sees the uh, moisture go back up into the clouds again. It all seems pointless to him and meaningless and a waste of time. And uh, every time that Solomon's down here in this book of Ecclesiastes is because he's looking at things from an earthly perspective. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. It'll uh, give us a good perspective to look at things from. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so, uh, I'm going to read verse 16 again. There it said, "Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing; yet the inward man is being renewed day by day." Solomon was depressed because his outward man was perishing, along with all his uh, the outward man's accomplishments that he had. We know that this body is only temporary as well as our riches and building projects. But the inward man, our soul, God renews that day by day. And uh, every day, God's mercies are new. So if you're really down like Solomon is here in Ecclesiastes, we just need to make it through this day. We just need to make it one day at a time because we know God's mercies are going to be new again tomorrow. And he's going to renew us day by day. Verse 17 in Second uh, Corinthians still says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Solomon was depressed at the shortness of his life. He was depressed that none of his accomplishments were going to last. But as New Testament believers, we take joy in the fact that our affliction is only momentary. We are looking forward to eternity. That's where our satisfaction is going to be. And this verse says that our light affliction we endure is working a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And those are a lot of big words, you know. It's funny that Paul is talking about the weight of glory. Because he's saying, uh, he's making it sound like you can physically measure the spiritual element here. So it's kind of funny, it's it's impossible. And uh, Paul says in Romans 8.18 also, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So he's saying there that if you take uh, one of those classic scales, you know, with the two uh, plates on it, and you put your light affliction on this side, and you put this far more exceeding eternal weight of glory on this side, that light affliction is just going to fly off the scale. You know, that's what Paul's saying here. God is working a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory for us. So Solomon's focusing on this uh, earthly perspective. He's focusing on his light affliction here. And it's weighing him down. But uh, the suffering is temporary. But that weight of glory that is far more exceeding is eternal. And verse 18 in 2 Corinthians here says... While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So Paul says to do something impossible here too. He's saying to look at the things which are not seen. And uh, that's impossible for us to do. How can you look at something that's not seen? But uh, he's talking about having that perspective there to focus on uh, the things of Jesus and these eternal things. That's not the perspective Solomon has. Um, We can focus on those things which are not seen by spending time in God's Word and in prayer and in fellowship. And we get these glimpses of God as we do that. So, back in Ecclesiastes, here, chapter 1, we'll go on further. Uh, We went to verse 11. So if we look at verse 12 here, it says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were born before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive this also as grasping for the wind, for in much wisdom is grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow." So Solomon wasn't content, even though he was wiser than all who came before him. And I think that one of Solomon's problems uh, was in verse 17. He said, I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I think he should have just stuck with the wisdom and forgotten about the madness and folly. In Romans 16:4, Paul says, I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. But Solomon experienced folly firsthand. Uh, he disobeyed the Lord in some things, and his experiment showed that it's not worth it. It only causes uh, harm. Uh, I want to look at a prayer that Paul prays for the believers in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul is praying for these believers here, and he says, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever, amen. So Paul wanted these Ephesians to know God. He wanted them to know the width the And the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love. Which is kind of funny to think about. You know, how big is God's love? How high does it go? How wide is it? Uh, It seems unsearchable. Like, how can you fully comprehend that? But that's what Paul's desire is. That they would just know God more and more. That they would be able to comprehend this love. And in comprehending it, they would be filled with the fullness of God. God. Solomon wasn't filled with the fullness of God. He was empty inside. That's what that word vanity means. It means uh, emptiness. So in that verse 1 of Ecclesiastes, when he said vanity of vanities, he was saying emptiness of emptiness. That's what he felt like. He was just empty inside. And so if we use Solomon's example here, the example of his life, and we take the exhortation of Paul in Ephesians here, we can just forget about experiencing sin for ourselves and we can uh, focus on knowing God. Be simple concerning evil and uh, be wise concerning good. That's where the fullness of God comes from. So, to look a little further back in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 now, we won't go too much further. I just want to get a summary of what uh, Solomon's saying here. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. But surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine, while guiding my heart with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the sons of men, to do under the heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked in all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and a grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. So even though Solomon had great riches and many possessions, he sought to hold on to folly, he searched his heart how to gratify his flesh, But it was all emptiness. Uh, Whatever his eyes desired, he said, he didn't keep from them. Whatever pleasure he wanted, he tried it out. But it didn't satisfy him. And uh, he goes on through these chapters here. But I want to look at the last thing that he says at the end of Ecclesiastes. So you go to chapter 12, verse 13 here. So we looked at his uh, resume here. He said that he was the richest king. He was the wisest king He tried it all. He wanted to know. He wanted to know like everything there was to know. He wanted to experience it all, even the folly. So that's his prerequisite. Now let's see what he says in verse 13 here. He says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So the conclusion of the whole matter, the end of his ramblings through Ecclesiastes, I would like to think that he's saying this is the conclusion of his life that he found, to fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So that is his conclusion. That's what the wisest and richest man said. Uh, At the end of his wisdom, at the end of his experiences, at the end of his riches, at the end of his life, being the wisest and richest man on earth, he says to serve God, for this is man's all. That's the best thing you can do with your life. It's the only thing that he found that isn't vain, that isn't empty. And uh, that's what Paul prayed for the believers of Ephesus, that they would get to know God and experience the fullness that is found only in him. And there's a verse I want to end on in 1 John chapter 1, verse 15 through 17. It says in 1 John 1, oh I'm sorry, it's first John chapter 2, verse 15 and 17. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So we're humans, and because we're humans, our hearts are only so big. We can only afford to love so many things. And uh, if we have the love of the world in us, there's no room for the love of the Father. It's one or the other we have to choose. But if we choose to love the Father, then we tap into His love. And all of a sudden, we can love so much more than we thought we were possible, possibly capable of. And um, we're able to love the world with His love. And instead of loving the world itself, we have a love for the world to save people out of it. And uh, in verse 16 there, it said... Uh, All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not of the Father, it's of the world. And uh, that's what Solomon experienced. He he had the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and he had all that pride. And it was all vanity for him. It didn't help him at all. It's not of the Father, it's of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Lord, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for allowing us to get to know you, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would help us not to love the world, but to love you, Lord God. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to know and to comprehend your great love for us, Lord. The height, the depth, the width, and the length, Lord. Oh, Lord, I want to experience the fullness of you, Lord. And I pray that for these believers here too, Lord God, that you would fill our hearts with your love, Lord Jesus. That you would help us to have that heavenly perspective and not to look on the things of the world like Solomon was, Lord. I pray that you would just help us to learn from his example, Lord God, and follow you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Even when you punish us, Lord, and when you judge us, Lord, you still love us, and I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would just bless this last worship song, Lord, that it would be pleasing to you, Lord God, that you would be with us. In your name I pray, amen.